0: Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormini, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, the search for planets beyond the solar system, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 30 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome planetary astronomer Heidi Hamel as my featured guest, an expert on the ice giant planets Uranus and Neptune. Hamel is currently Vice President for Science at Aura, a consortium that operates large astronomical observatories, including the Hubble Space Telescope, Gemini Observatory, and many more. Hamel primarily studies outer planets. She served on the imaging team for the Voyager 2-Neptune encounter, and has studied Uranus and Neptune extensively with Hubble-Keck and other facilities. An interdisciplinary scientist for NASA's forthcoming James Webb Space Telescope, Hamill was awarded a Ph.D. in Physics and Astronomy from the University of Hawaii in 1988. This year, she received the American Astronomical Society's Mazursky Award for Outstanding Service to Planetary Science and Exploration. Asteroid 1981 EC-20 was renamed 3530 Hamel in her honor. But today, we'll be chatting about Uranus and Neptune. Hamel joins us from outside Washington, D.C. Heidi, welcome to Cosmic Controversy.
1: It's great to be with you today.
0: So first off, we all know that Jupiter and Saturn are gaseous giant planets. And Uranus and Neptune are now defined as ice giants. Please give us a definition of what an ice giant planet is as opposed to a gas giant.
1: Sure. Okay, so uh, first of all, uh, their ice giants are an intermediate class of planet between the gas giants, like Jupiter and Saturn, and the terrestrial planets like Earth and Mars, those kind. These are in between in size. They're, you know, part, they're not as big as our gas giants. They're blue, (laughs) blue and blue green instead of the tawny golden yellow colors. And we can talk about what that might mean. Um, They spin faster than gas, uh, excuse me, they spin slower than gas giants, um, but faster than the Earth. And their interiors are fundamentally different from the interiors of Jupiter and Saturn. And that's really the main reason we make this distinction of calling them ice giants. I wanna be clear, when we say ice, we don't mean like uh, like the ice that comes out of your refrigerator or falls from the sky on a winter day. Ice in our astronomy terms uh, means materials like water or ammonia, or methane. Mm-hmm. So not hydrogen and helium. And that's what Jupiter and Saturn are made of. But we believe the interiors of Neptune and Uranus um, have a, a thick layer of, of, of briny water uh, inside them. Um, and, and that's why we call them ice giants. Not They're not cold. Well, they are cold, but they're not cold like with ice. <laughs> so sorry if that's confusing.
0: How did they actually form? Did they form by accretion or the result of gravitational instabilities within our own Sun's circumstellar disk?
1: Well, that's a good question and uh, one that's hotly debated still. Um, I think the favored model right now is accretion, that the the, the cores of these planets uh, were collected together from little clumps of planetesimals that grew larger and larger and larger, sticking together um, and then um, when they got large enough, uh, then gases started to fall onto them, giving them their, their thick atmospheres. But until we have a mission and an, an atmospheric probe that really dives into the atmosphere and measures some of the, the chemistry, we're not going to be hundred percent sure about that. So it's it's something that we' we're we're still, um, we're still debating in our community.
0: So can you explain a little bit about that about uh, the difference between, how our own terrestrial planets in the interior of, their sol- of our solar system formed as opposed to rocky planets like Earth, as opposed to the, the gas giants and then the ice giants. Can you kind of like give us a, a scenario of how these may have formed?
1: Well, I think that the um, if you go with the core accretion model, the beginning stages are the same, that you've got this swirling nebula uh, around our, our primitive early sun that contains a lot of dust. It contains a lot of gases. And uh, over time, the the little particles of dust stick together. Um, In the inner solar system uh, where the sun is, uh, there's probably less of the gases and less of the ices. And here I actually mean ice, like water ice, cold water ice condensing. It's probably less of that there. And so you're left with more rocky materials. Further out in the solar system, beyond Jupiter, beyond Saturn, um, you have uh, colder air, uh, colder dust, colder gases. So you actually do get a lot more ices and things like that out there coagulating onto these granules that that eventually become large enough that we can call them planetesimals, t- tiny planets. And those tiny planets, there's a lot of them out there. So they start to collide with one another and stick together and build up sort of the nascent core of, of a giant planet. If it gets large enough, uh, the gravitational pull of that core is strong enough that it'll start pulling in all the gases onto it as well and create thick envelopes of gases. The The challenge is that while we can explain the formations of Jupiter and Saturn fairly well this way, um, Uranus and Neptune have defied uh, good explanation because the time scales where they're located, it seems to be too long to be able to form the planets as we see them today. Uh, That has led us to a different understanding of how our early solar system formed. And that is that we think these planets actually formed closer in than they are found today. And that is how we get around this idea of there not being enough time for them to form.
0: So the two ice giant planets, uh, Uranus and Neptune, uh, don't receive a lot of attention. I mean, we 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 read about Jupiter and Saturn quite a bit, and obviously with this conjunction, they've gotten a lot of att- <laughs> they've gotten a lot of attention. <laughs> they have they have a good uh, press agent, I guess, this week. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't really hear a lot about um, Neptune and and Uranus. Why is that? You think is it that because we've only had a probe, one probe, which was a Voyager 2 that flew by them both, and that was uh, 86 and 89, if I remember correctly? Or is it just that uh, we have have not had the data to study them like we, we do these other planets?
1: I think it's a couple of things. Um, first of all, anybody who has been out there trying to observe the conjunction that's going on between Jupiter and Saturn right now, they have a pretty good idea in their heads of how hard it is to see Jupiter and Saturn with just small telescopes or binoculars. So just, but to give you a sense of scale, the size of Jupiter, we use the, we use a unit called arc seconds in the sky. That's what astronomers use. Jupiter, for reference, is about 49 arc seconds across, all right? Uranus is less than four arc seconds across, And so if you imagine what Jupiter looks like and then now try to imagine a planet one-tenth the size, all right? I'm not saying that Uranus is that size. I'm saying that Uranus is smaller than Jupiter and it's like so much further away, all right? So its apparent size is one-tenth the size of Jupiter. And then Neptune is half the size of that again, um, and so the challenge for these planets is that for most telescopes, and, and that includes most professional telescopes, these uh, these planets are little more than a, a tiny greenish or bluish dot in the sky. They barely re- resolve into a disk of a planet. To actually see them with... Um, to see the disk and to see clouds on the disk, you really need to use the most powerful telescopes at our disposal. Uh, Telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope, telescopes like the Keck 10 meter telescopes, uh, telescopes like uh, the Gemini eight meter telescopes. And those telescopes are in very high demand by all astronomers. And so you get very little time to look at Uranus and Neptune. And there have been no missions, as you said, since 1986 for the Uranus flyby by Voyager 2 and 1989, which was the Neptune flyby. There haven't been any missions. In contrast, you know, we had the Galileo mission orbiting Jupiter for eight years. Um, We currently have a a mission orbiting Jupiter right now, the Juno mission. Cassini orbited Saturn for like 17 years, sending back just reams upon reams of wonderful Saturn imagery. Um, We haven't had anything like that for the ice giants. And so they... um, they, they sort it's a sort of a double whammy that um, we don't have missions to them and they're extraordinarily hard to study. And so I think that's one reason we hear less about them. They do have a lot of interesting things going on. And we can talk about that um, as we go forward um, in this conversation. Both Uranus and Neptune in the years since Voyager um, have revealed a lot of their secrets to us with our most powerful telescopes from the, from the space and from the ground. And we can talk about some of those results when we get there.
0: But as you were mentioning at the top of the conversation, you th- we think or the kind of the paradigm now is that Uranus and Neptune may have formed closer into the sun and migrated outward. Is that the paradigm now?
1: Yeah, that's the paradigm we're working with today. It was relatively new um, quite a number of years ago. I remember when Renu Malhotra was the first person really talking about this idea of migration of the planets. I think what really sealed the deal was when we started discovering planets around other stars that were gas giant-sized, but in at the orbit of Mercury. (laughs) And there's just no way they could have formed there. And so it became very clear Um, from our study of planets around other stars, exoplanets, um, that planets do migrate around their stars in sometimes very dramatic ways. We don't think that the migration in our solar system was quite as dramatic, although there are some models that suggest that perhaps we had a third ice giant that perhaps got kicked out of our solar system um, during a period of um, intense um, resonance with Saturn. Is that right? Uh, it's no. one. It's one. It's one idea. Where, one no, idea. where would we, that? Where would have, that have
0: been? Do, you, do we have any idea with, uh, on the putative orbit of that ice giant that was might have been probably?
1: Kicked out? Yeah, we probably out in a similar area where where our giant planets are right now.
0: You oh, know,
1: okay. they're likely to be out there. So yeah. further,
0: further on, further afield than Neptune or. Uh, Somewhere between. Well, it's Uranus it's, it's and kind Neptune. of
1: hard. Yeah. You, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about it in those terms uh-huh. because some of our models actually have Uranus and Neptune in different order in, in the early solar system. And oh, is that right? the models have them switching places uh, as time goes on. And so um, it, it, you can't really use our current. Um, Ordering of the planets as your reference scale. Okay. Um, it's really very model dependent, and um, there's a, you know, there's there's a lot of different theories and a lot of different models to run. So um, until we actually start measuring some of the chemistry of these planets, uh, I think it's going to stay um, a point of controversy. Uh, uh, you know, where where exactly they formed and when they formed and how they got to where they are.
0: Right. Okay. So we all know basically that, you know, we can see. Uh, Five planets with the naked eye and I guess the sixth planet that I've never I've never had any luck in seeing it but I mean if you consult the literature Uranus is uh, supposedly visible with the naked eye is it truly visible with the naked eye or do you need binoculars
1: well um let's well you know I well I mean, the short answer is yes it's visible to the naked eye if you're in a very, very dark site, and you have exceptionally good eyes. <laughs> so finding a dark enough spot that pretty much rules out the entire East Coast of the United States, right? Right, right. Because right. we got too much light pollution. Uh, maybe it, you know, deep in some of the the areas out in the Midwest, or if you go to remote areas where you're very, very far from any cities, you might have skies that are dark enough. And you also have to have really good eyes. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I wear glasses. <laughs> My eyes are pretty bad. Right, um, right. I'm sure that I could not, um, I'm sure I could not see Uranus. But I know people that have extraordinarily good eyes. Um, and if they're very dark adapted, you know, you can imagine um, people who um, are, f- are very far away from all city lights. You know, it's, it's theoretically bright enough that you could see it. It would be a very faint star, but you would be able to detect it.
0: So uh, Uranus orbits the sun once every 84 years, uh, taking an average of seven years to pass through each constellation of the zodiac. In 2033, the planet will have made its third complete orbit around the sun since being discovered by William Herschel in 1781. And he first thought it was a comet rather than a planet, uh, but Finnish-Swedish astronomer Anders Johan Lexel first computed Uranus's orbit and concluded it was a planet rather than a comet. How has our understanding of Uranus evolved over the last hundred years? It's a big question sure
1: yeah yeah well of course when Herschel saw it um, he didn't recognize it as a planet for the reason I mentioned earlier um, to his even with his pretty good telescope you know that he made himself um it it didn't resolve itself like a disc you know it was it was kind of extended kind of. Kind of greenish, bluish, uh-huh. and uh, and it moved, and it moved. I mean, to him, that to him that was the notable thing. There was this thing um, that moved in the sky, and you know, back then, things that moved in the sky like that, you know, they called them comets. You know, he he loved to look for comets. His you know his sister who worked with him, Caroline Herschel, found comets too. So that was his first instinct to say this was a comet, slow moving comet. And it wasn't until, as you said, that they computed the orbit of it, they realized. Hmm, the way this thing is moving, um, it's probably not a comet. It's probably a planet. And um, since then, um, we spent many years studying this object. We discovered fairly quickly that um, that it was oblate. Once they got better and better telescopes, and the te- the people um, who were astronomers back in those early days, like the in the eighteen hundreds, m- remember they didn't have cameras. Uh, they didn't have electronic detectors like we did, so they looked with their eyes. And our Earth's atmosphere, it's its very um, swirly and variable. And it makes it hard to see distant objects like galaxies and stars and planets. But every once in a while, there are moments of extreme clarity. And when you're looking with your eye, you can your eye processes things very rapidly. And they could occasionally see these glimpses and see what looked like banded structure and capture the shape of the planet. And it wasn't perfectly spherical. It was kind of oblate. And by looking at the banded structure that they got these glimpses of, they realized pretty early on that this planet was tipped over like 90 degrees. (laughs) So its rotation axis was like laying in the plane of the solar system, which is weird, really crazy. Um, But they were right about that. Um, since then, um, we've learned um, a lot of uh, we've learned sort of what its basic atmosphere is by looking at reflected light, reflected sunlight and measuring what we call a spectrum. By looking at sort of the, the distribution of light as a function of its color, we can figure out the components of what the atmosphere is made of. So we knew that the atmosphere had a lot of hydrogen and helium. We knew it had methane as well and um, we knew it was tipped over we knew that it occasionally seemed to have bands but with the advent of modern photography um, people started trying to take photographs of it and they couldn't see any discrete clouds they didn't see bright spots or dark spots and so there was this uh, mythology kind of developing about Uranus in particular that it was a it was a it was a dead planet. It had been knocked over on its side. All of its heat released, and it was just atmospherically dead.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: was the the story about it. Um, when Voyager two flew by in 1986, it kind of confirmed that story. <laughs> there was like a blue orb, sort of a cyan orb, that seemed to have very few clouds. Um, and so atmospheric scientists were kind of disappointed or like, wow, you know, what do we, how are we going to figure out the rotation period of this planet? You know, cause there's no clouds to mark its motion. Right. It turned out there was about 10 clouds, 10 features that we could see.
0: Okay. And um, we're going to get to some, some of those, uh, a bit later, but, um, but the, the thing that the, I think the listener needs to understand is that none of these, uh, gas giant, the gas giants and the ice giants, have a uh, a surface as we know it here on Earth, or in uh, or in, on as any planet in the in, in the inner solar system has. They're they're totally different. They're a totally different kettle of fish. Correct. I mean,
1: that, that's exactly right. Yeah, you couldn't land a spacecraft on Uranus or Jupiter. Um, yeah, the way I think about it is, you're flying your spacecraft in. You you want to come in for a soft landing. You're flying through clouds. You get deeper. There's more clouds. You get deeper than that. There's even more clouds, thicker clouds, and the clouds start to get thicker and thicker and and heavier. And the pressure above you is getting very high because you're going down so deep in the atmosphere. But you're still only encountering clouds. At some point, uh, at some point, your spacecraft will be crushed by the pressure um, of the atmosphere above you before you get anywhere near uh, the, the near the center of the planet where there may be. A core of rocky material, but you would never get there in a space spaceship.
0: So gosh, okay.
1: you couldn't you couldn't land there. You did, if you want to go visit Neptune or Uranus, you're going to have to go land on one of its moons and watch from the watch from a moon base.
0: And so, even in the far future, even when we have very advanced technology, the best we will be able to do for for Uranus and Neptune in, in terms of in situ exploration of the planets themselves, we'll be able to go down. Send the send the suicide probe into the atmosphere. Hopefully, take data until it just is crushed. The same way that the same thing that kind of happens on when we send uh, probes to the surface of Venus, right? So
1: yeah, we, yeah, and so, sort of like we did with the Galileo probe. The Galileo spacecraft that orbited Jupiter had an atmospheric probe that we sent in to the atmosphere of Jupiter, and and it you know it, it was descending through the clouds for roughly I think it was about an hour. Um, before it was either crushed or melted, It depends on you know. I think it was crushed before it totally melted. Yeah.
0: Okay. But so- you know
1: what? I want to say this though. We have ideas um, uh, that maybe longer lived than that. If you can imagine a very clever balloon system that you oh, put well. in a probe, but it 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 it, um, it inflates some kind of a balloon, and you'd have to do the math to make sure it floats in the. Mostly hydrogen upper atmosphere, um, but uh, if you have a probe that is dangling from a balloon, you could have that floating through the atmosphere for much lo- a longer time than you would for a probe that just free falls into the planet. And so, you know, that's something that we we think about. It's harder. So um,
0: we can if, look you know, forward to that uh, eventually. You think
1: some someday maybe? You know, I mean, I'll take a a free faller probe first, it's easier. And it would give us some basic information that right now we just don't have any basic information um, about the deeper atmospheres. And we would need that information to be able to properly design some kind of a floating system. Um, But, you know, as a planetary scientist, you know, I I think about that um, because, you know, we think about that for Venus. We think about that for Titan, uh, any planet that has an atmosphere, we can imagine, um, a, perhaps in the future, far future, a more sophisticated way of exploring than just dropping a probe until it sinks.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so let's go back to Uranus's uh, axial tilt. Uh, as you mentioned, it's tilted on its side, and we've been we've known that for quite a, quite a long time. I think the axial tilt now is almost ni- uh, known to be ninety eight degrees, and which means uh, that. Each of Uranus's poles gets around 42 years of continuous sunlight, followed by 42 years of darkness. <laughs> I mean, that, that is incredible. The cause of this tilt is thought to have been uh, from a massive object r- roughly one to three times the size of Earth, smacked into to, uh, early Uranus and caused the planet to tilt, and then also, as you mentioned, released a lot of its in, uh, internal heat. Uh, we know that Uranus is bizarrely one of the coldest places in the solar system.
1: Well, it's certainly one of the theories that we've got. It, and I think it's, you know, we have different theories that come and go, um, but that one seems to be standing the test of time. And and we think it must have happened pretty early on in the solar system's formation because when you look at the ring system of Uranus and the moons of Uranus, they all orbit in the same tilted 98 degree tilted plane that the planet rotates in and so um, you know it's a pretty and and it's a pretty stable system Um, so it must have happened a long time ago this is not a recent collision
0: so uh, as for the composition though we know that uh, that was recently discovered that uranus has hydrogen sulfide in its upper atmosphere the gas that uh, uh, gives us the, the rotten egg smell uh, which permeates the upper atmosphere of the planet. So, based on sp- spectroscopy with the Gemini North the telescope, which is one of the, the telescopes that's operated by Aura, your consortium, uh, astronomers uncovered the noxious gas swirling high in the giant planet's clouds. Uh, were you surprised by this detection?
1: I, I, w- I was. I was only surprised in in that there was enough of it to be detected in the upper atmosphere. Um we're we were pretty sure based on our models of what we think these atmospheres were composed of, and our observations taken at radio wavelengths and microwave wavelengths, we were pretty sure that there was this hydrogen sulfide at um, deeper layers in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. so the, the the detection itself um, of that of that chemical didn't surprise me. I think what I, what did surprise me was that it was seen in the upper atmosphere. Um, Especially for Uranus, because, you know, this idea of Uranus is that it's not a super dynamic atmosphere. One of the things that really surprised us about Uranus was um, we were watching it carefully um, in the years since the Voyager flyby. Um, You know, because every time we get new technology like the Hubble Space Telescope, well, let's look at Uranus, right? Mm -hmm. See what we see. And I remember in particular, um, I I saw some images that people said were from the Hubble Space Telescope of Uranus. And I said, "Ma, it can't be Uranus. Look at all those bright cloud features. Uranus doesn't have those. And the person um, who, who was showing it to me said, well, yeah, that actually is Uranus. You know, I... I was looking for moons, but I took some short exposures so that I had a picture to put on my poster of the planet. And I'm like, well, that's crazy. (laughs) And he had exactly three pictures from Hubble, literally three, one, two, three. But I could see these features moving in the images. So I I measured those features, motions, uh, rotation period of the planet, wrote a paper about it and started a program trying to study this planet um, with the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, you mentioned about the long year of Uranus, right? Mm -hmm. And how there's a time uh, when the South Pole is pointing at the sun. And it happened that the Voyager 2 spacecraft flew by Uranus at that season, which we call summer solstice, when the southern hemisphere was literally pointing at the sun, southern hemisphere of Uranus. So that whole planet was baking, half of it was baking in sunlight, and the other half was baking in darkness, now, fast forward several decades, um, that's how long I've been studying Uranus, um, <laughs> to the year 2007. 2007, the planet has moved a quarter of the way around its orbit around the sun, okay? And at now, its equator is pointing at the sun, right? And so the planet is rotating, and it's fully illuminated. It's that one point in its orbit where both the North and the South Pole are getting sunlight,
0: for the gosh. first,
1: You know, for the first time, right? 21 years. What really surprised us was that as Uranus approached that configuration, we started seeing all these clouds popping up in the atmosphere. They were literally bubbling up in the atmosphere. I mean, when I say that, I mean, they were dynamic. Like we would look at the cloud one day and the next day we'd look again and it would have faded completely away. So it was like a thundercloud cloud an anvil cloud penetrating high in the atmosphere, and then rapidly over you know the course of hours subsiding again. So this atmosphere is suddenly dynamic and turning on um, to the point where in the year 2007, when you, know, you can take a single picture of Uranus with the Keck telescope in Hawaii, and you could count in the single image, you could count 30 cloud features. Right? Mm. Three times more than the entire Voyager flyby, which was at the planet, right? Right. Um, So this planet really turned on dynamically, and there was a dark spot appeared, which was a surprise. Um, Uranus didn't have any great dark spots Mm -hmm. um, when Voyager flew by, but it developed one in 2006, but it only lasted for a year or so. Um, We haven't seen another one on Uranus since. So, this planet um I think um, has gotten a bad rap um, because of the the season that Voyager flew by, and because of our technology prior to Voyager, um, people were trying to do photographic images and things like that, and that they were smearing out what little detail there was to see in the atmosphere because I go back to those 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 guys in the 1800s, remember I mentioned them? Right. Um, they they were drawing pictures that showed, you know, bands and dark clouds and bright spots. And um, I think they were right. So, I think that so in other their words, eyes were so, able to pick up stuff that we haven't been able to see right. for many, many decades because of the technology we're using, smearing it out.
0: Ah, okay. So, in other words, uh, initially we thought that uh, Uranus was a kind of a dead planet Uh, not dead in the, in the, in the sense of dormant,
1: maybe dormant planet. It just wasn't
0: very interesting dynamically. And, and that whole, that whole idea has shifted uh, in the last uh, 20, uh, 30 years is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, we, we now um, have images that show wave patterns and, um, polar activity on Uranus that seems to be similar to what we see on Saturn. It's all right at the edge of our detection capability with the biggest telescopes on Earth. So it's tantalizing and and frustrating (laughs) for someone like me who's like trying to study this stuff. And like, you need the best telescopes on Earth and you need the skies to cooperate, you know, if it's if it's just like a poor night. You know, you won't, get, you won't get what you need. But on those few nights where this, the atmos- our atmosphere is crystal clear and our biggest telescopes are working at the top of their game, we can see a lot of interesting structure on this planet. That's why I would love to go back someday with a spacecraft, with an orbiter to sit and watch that and get a really better understanding than we have right now.
0: Now, does does Uranus have uh, diamonds deep in its atmosphere? I don't, I don't know if I read that in a press release or there was a paper about this. Uh, any sort of diamond activity?
1: This comes from a study where they have looked at what happens to methane when it's under very high pressures and high temperatures, as we expect to see deep in the atmosphere. Of Uranus and the methane molecule, it's it's carbon surrounded by hydrogen, right? Um, That's what methane is, right? And so, this study says when you take methane and you squeeze the methane at the extremely high pressures that you expect at deep inside the atmosphere of Uranus, what happens is that the carbon that's at the sort of the core of the methane molecule fuses with other carbon molecules and the hydrogen uh, is stripped away. And what you basically are left with was, you know, what is, what is, what is it when you take carbon and you compact it extremely high temperatures into its most basic form? Uh, That's a diamond. And so what happens is at these extremely high pressures, the theory goes, um, the, the methane is basically crystallized into droplets of diamond with hydrogen bubbles bubbling away. The hydrogen bubbles up and the diamonds fall. And so you get a diamond rain deep, deep in the atmosphere wow. of this. Pretty cool. And, and it's incredible. true for Neptune as well. Uh, same process working on Neptune. Uh, now, this is not a, uh, it's not to say that if we had a spaceship, we could fly it uh, in there and with a big net and scoop up <laughs> diamonds, um, because, you know, the pressures uh, that at which this take place, if they're high enough to fuse methane into diamonds, they're high enough to flatten your spaceship into its its basic elements as well. Right. So we're not going to be able to go there and, and uh, mine the diamonds, um, but it's a, it's a really neat idea to think about, uh, this diamond rain and this uh, bubbling up of the hydrogen from the deeper layers of the, of the interior of Uranus and the interior of Neptune. So in
0: 1977, uh, the Kuiper uh, Airborne Observatory, which I believe was an op- operated by NASA even then, discovered that Uranus had rings. They were trying to do spectroscopy of, of Uranus's atmosphere using a background star, a big bright OB uh, type star in the background and they noticed the if I'm not incorrect that uh, the uh, the star kept occulting when they weren't really focused on uh, Uranus and they attributed that there was some periodicity in the way it occulted as they focused on this whole region around uh, Uranus and so they surmised that this was this occultation was caused by uh, a ring, a ring, or rings of Uranus. Is that is that basically the the discovery? Did I get the discovery of this of the ring system correct?
1: Yeah, you described that really well. Um, that was actually my my advisor um, when I was in college was Jim Elliot, and it was Jim Elliot and his team that were using the Kuiper Airborne Observatory to do that measurement um, and. You know, he he told me about it a number of times how, you know, he's a very careful observer. So he turned on the observing system well before the planet was about to cross in front of the star. They just did that because, you know, they're just being careful, making sure it all worked. They wanted to have a star baseline. And like you said, the star kept winking on and off. And they were like, what's going on? Is there a problem <laughs> with our equipment? Is there something wrong? You know, is, is, there, is there a loose wire? You know, what is that? Um, but they kept taking the data. And then um, then the, the planet crossed in front of the star. And then when the planet moved on, the star came back. And they continued to observe. And they saw the winking. And they realized that the distances of the winking from the star was identical on both sides, mm. the same distance. And it was the rings blocking out the starlight causing the winking on and off. And so that that's how those rings were discovered. Uh, it was really unexpected. They were not looking for rings. Uh, but the rings, you know, announced themselves uh, by blocking out the starlight. That's yeah, a very, very definition
0: fun. of, of uh, astronomical serendipity. Absolutely, <laughs> that's, that's a that's a great story. But um, so, what do we know about these uh, rings? And how would you know? We are all kind of familiar with the these huge rings of Saturn. How do they? How do the rings of Uranus compare to Saturn?
1: So um, they, and they saw a few rings with this occultation technique, and then when Voyager flew by, you know, less than t- 10 years later in 1986, they could image the rings directly with Voyager, um, and they discovered there were more of them. And they discovered they were really pretty dusty. Um, At one point, they had passed Uranus and looked back towards the sun. And all of a sudden, all these rings kind of lit up with all this dust in between the narrow rings. So unlike Saturn's rings that are big sheets, that's what people think of sheets of rings, um, the rings of Uranus were more like hula hoops, right? Mm -hmm. Very thin and narrow. Um, But in between the thin, narrow rings, Voyager determined there was dust. And and that was pretty much it for a long time for ring science. We did more occultations. That's the technique um, we were discussing where you watch the star um, as, uh, as rings or planets cross in front of them. So people were studying the rings that way. And it was not until we got close to 2007 um, when we got to that unique time that I was talking about, which was you know, the equinox, where the equator was pointing directly at the sun and the earth. And also, that was also the time that the ring plane is pointing towards the sun and the earth. And that gave us a unique opportunity with Hubble and with the Keck telescope to actually study the rings as the ring system kind of closed up according to our view from the earth. So, like, imagine... At solstice, when um, Voyager flew by, the rings were forming a bullseye around the planet, right? So they're they're like little hula hoops surrounding the planet. Right. But in 2007, the rings were sideways to us. We were looking along the ring plane, Mm. and that allowed us to actually detect rings that were so faint that even Voyager didn't see them. But we could see them with Hubble and with Keck, so we discovered two new ring systems um, rings two new rings around the planet um, in the years 2006 and 2007.
0: that's amazing and
1: so we're up to about 13 hula hoops now, 13 rings mm-hmm. around Uranus so it's a it's not as quite as dramatic as the the ring system of Saturn, um, but it is a very interesting and complex ring system. Um, one of the most interesting things we found was that the rings had different colors. <laughs> um, you know, people think of them as mostly gray-ish, mm-hmm. but, you know, Saturn's rings, they have, there's red rings, reddish rings, there's bluish rings. And what we discovered was that the rings of Uranus also, there was a red ring and there was a blue ring. And um, they were the two new rings that we found. One was red, one was blue. So, we wrote a a paper, and we called them. The paper was called The New Dust Belts of Uranus uh, One Ring, Two Ring, Red Ring, Blue Ring. <laughs> and uh, science actually published our, our One Ring, Two Ring, Red Ring, Blue Ring um, s- uh, subtitle, which we thought was kind of fun. Um, and okay. it was actually accepted for publication on Dr. Seuss's birthday. So oh. I thought that was kind of cool. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> Do you have any idea what uh, formed these rings around Uranus? And their composition, or do we have to wait for another mission? Well,
1: we're going to have to wait, you know. I mean, do we even know what formed the rings around Saturn, you know? (laughs) We've had a spacecraft in orbit there 17 years, and we still don't really know that. Um, But I'll tell you, one of the things that I find most interesting and mysterious about the the Uranus rings is that blue ring. And the reason I find that so strange is that uh, when you look at, The Saturn system and its blue ring, we think we know what causes the Saturn's blue ring. And that is, there's a moon of Saturn called Enceladus. And it's embedded in the blue ring. Mm. And Enceladus, we know, is jetting liquid water off its southern pole. And as this planet moves, as, as this moon moves around Saturn, we think that this material that's jetting out of the pole... So it's what's causing the blue ring. It's fresh water ice causing the blue ring on Saturn. So what's causing the blue ring at Uranus?
0: Mm.
1: Um, there is a tiny moon that's embedded in that blue ring, but it's tiny. It's a little tiny Mab. Mm-hmm. And we don't think Mab is big enough to have a, an ocean or liquid water. And yet, and yet there is a blue ring there, <laughs> And so, the, and the, why? And the, the moon,
0: and the moon of, of Uranus is uh, is called Mab?
1: Yeah, M-A-B, Mab. Mab, yeah.
0: okay. All right, I, did, yeah. I learned something. So, let's talk about Neptune. We don't want to ne- neglect Neptune. Neptune is the eighth planet now because, you know, Pluto was demoted to a, a dwarf planet. So, it is the eighth planet from the sun, 17 times the mass of Earth, slightly more massive than near twin Uranus. So Neptune is the only planet in the solar system found by mathematical prediction rather than empirical observation. Alexis Bouvard was the first to deduce that Uranus' orbit was subject to gravitational perturbation by an un- unknown planet. And then later, Johann Gall, uh, Urbain Le Verrier, and John Couch Adams all worked independently to help discover Neptune in 1846. That w- but that was an- not a trivial task.
1: The basic challenge is that Neptune is even further away than Uranus. And so it, it's really, really difficult to see it as anything other than just a little point source, like a star, a blue star, if right. you will. And so um, these folks, when they made these mathematical predictions, they didn't know exactly where to look. They knew to look in a piece of the sky. So they had to be scouring a a, a modestly large piece of sky night after night after night looking for something that moved. And remember, they didn't have uh, photographic plates or cameras. They couldn't take a picture and then take a picture later and, and compare them to see what had moved. They actually had to memorize the star field. And then look to see what had changed in that star field. Mm. And Neptune doesn't move very fast. (laughs) It takes 165 years uh, for Neptune to make a trip around the sun. Mm -hmm. And so the apparent motion in the sky that they were looking for was really, really very small. So you're looking for a, a point source. You're looking for a point source that's moving just a tiny bit. Um, You don't know what color it is. I said blue, but they didn't know it was blue. Um, So they they just were looking for some kind of star that moved. And, you know, these, uh, to credit to them, they were really very, very careful observers. And they were able to detect it and confirm that, in fact, there was a planet there in the place that had been predicted to be pulling Uranus out of its Keplerian orbit. And they found it. For
0: them. Good gosh. So, as Voyager 2 passed by in 89, I think it was August of 89, uh, it snapped pictures of the two giant uh, storms brewing in Neptune's southern hemisphere, uh, which uh, the scientists dubbed the storms the Great Dark Spot and the Dark Spot 2. And then five years later, Hubble uh, took shark images of Neptune that revealed both the Earth sized Great Dark Spot and the smaller Dark Spot 2 had vanished. And then a new, uh, just a couple of years ago, we uh, detected, or researchers detected, a, uh, a new dark spot, um, which was nearly identical in size and shape to the one Voyager saw in '89. And so it's been in, uh, recently kind of estimated that this is a continual thing, uh, that these spots appear and disappear, and, and they must be obviously some sort of uh, storm activity within the atmosphere. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right and um l- let me just um sort of put a personal story on it when you're talking about hubble and scientists and all that that was me <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay, actually
1: <laughs> it wasn't some random nam- nameless faces scientist um i can tell you exactly how it all went down okay please um, yeah because i i had proposed um to do follow-up work on the great dark spot with the hubble space telescope and um it, it was writing the proposal it was my first proposal that i had written for hubble and so it was a little scary um it turned out not to be my first observations with Hubble because we had a little intervention uh with a comet named shoemaker levy 9 that crashed into Jupiter and that all happened before I actually got my Neptune observations um but I remember um these observations um I had I um I was working at MIT at the time I was a Research scientist there, and one of my colleagues down the hall, a fellow named Tim Dowling. Um, he was uh, more of a theoretician, and his specialty was um, he was creating computer models of the Great Dark Spot uh, from the Voyager data. So he was working really hard to get his his atmospheric simulation to create a dark spot. And um, so and, and so, I remember the day. The timing couldn't have been more perfect. I, I remember the day I got my Hubble data. Right, they they send it to you on an exabyte tape drive, and I had popped the tape drives into the tape drive reader and was loading up the images. And I was sitting there and I was looking at image after. These are Hubble images. Mm-hmm. Image after image, I'm like, where's my dark spot? <laughs> it was like, there's no great dark spot.
0: Good gosh! Huh.
1: Maybe it's on the other side of the planet. Well, I had I had scheduled it to sort of do it in thirds of the planet, so I had all you know you know three sides, just so I could see the whole planet. So I went through all of the data, and I'm like, I'm sitting there in my office, I'm kind of staring at my screen with my jaw hanging down. I'm like, uh. There's no great dark spot. And and Tim, bless his heart, Tim Dowling comes into my office. He's like, he's so excited. He's like, Heidi, Heidi. I've been finally been able to create a great dark spot in my Neptune atmosphere model. And I looked at him and I said, Tim, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> You're going to have to make it go away now <laughs> because it's gone. It's <laughs> like, that's not possible. And I'm like, well, yes, it is. Cause here's the data. You can look with me. And uh, yeah, we just like what happened? And it turned out, um, uh, you know, uh, the, it, there was some bright clouds and, and after I had, worked with the data for a while, I discovered that the bright clouds in the Northern Hemisphere actually had um, buried underneath them at blue wavelengths, a dark spot in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. It was not the Voyager one. That was in the Southern Hemisphere. And it was not as big as the Voyager one. And so that was like amazing. I mean, that was incredible. Uh, it's like totally changing our understanding of dark spots in the atmosphere. And like you said, um, Hubble since then, in the 30 years that Hubble has been working, um, it has um, taken many, many images of Neptune, uh, not only by me, but many of our colleagues. And right now we have a program going uh, called the, uh, the OPAL program, Outer Planet Atmospheric Legacy Program, where Hubble takes images of all the giant planets all four, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, every year, one set of images a year. And uh, just recently, they released an absolutely gorgeous new image of of Neptune from Hubble, showing a, a beautiful northern great dark spot, very, very similar to the one that I had seen way back in 1994. And like you said, um, by looking at all of these Hubble images together, um, we're starting to put together an understanding of the Really uh, dynamic nature of these great dark spots on Neptune. They only seem to last for two to six years, something like that. And then they go away and then a new one comes. Sometimes you have two, um, a big one and a not quite as big one, similar to what Voyager saw. Um, and uh, what's what's driving, uh, this is we don't know what's driving this. Um, it's not at all like the great red spot on Jupiter, which has been hanging around for hundreds of years. It's really a different kind of atmospheric feature, um, unique to ice giants. You know, only, only ice giants seem to have these transient dark spots like this. It's cool. It's fun. Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. Uh, so um, Neptune also brightened significantly between in a 20-year period from 80, 1980 to 2000. Uh, do we know what caused that brightening?
1: Yeah, we're talking a lot about that, trying to understand it. Um, we're not sure if it's just geometry that, you know, we're seeing a slowly changing view of Uranus. i uh, sorry, of Neptune over these years. Uh-huh. Um, but there, there's also some indication that there may be temperature changes over the years as well. And so um, it's it's still a bit mysterious to us. Um, I think the only way we're gonna be able to answer that question is um, to study Neptune for a very long time. Um, It's not gonna be me doing it because remember the year for Neptune is 165 Earth years. Mm -hmm. So the reason we could even make um, assessments of this long time variability is that there were, there was uh, some observers at Lowell Observatory Who started observing Neptune back in the 1960s? Good gosh! Um, And Mike Jerskevich, and then Wes Lockwood, Uh and Wes just recently (laughs) retired after like 40 years worth of observations of Neptune, and um,
0: that's a (laughs) lot. Trying to give us a a
1: sense of, you know, is this seasonal or not seasonal? Um, We may have to wait till. You know, we write it all up and publish it and put it in the literature, the scientific literature, because, you know, 40, 50 years from now, there'll be some young student who's going to pick this up and try to truly understand it. We simply don't have enough baseline on Neptune yet to know whether this is seasonal or somehow driven by changes in sunlight or, you know, uh, galactic cosmic rays. We don't really know. It's going to take a long time to sort it out.
0: But Neptune also, like Uranus, does have rings, um, but they're more, much more unstable than the rings, say, the Saturnian rings. And uh, there's been uh, you know, a paper that posits that these rings might, that, that at least some of, the, of Neptune's rings might totally disappear within 100 years.
1: Yeah, one of the things that makes the rings of Neptune quite unique in our solar system is that they're not uniform. They're clumpy. Uh-huh. And that caused a lot of consternation in the early years when we were trying to determine whether it had rings or not. I mean, people used the same technique they did for Uranus, right? These stellar occultations. Right. And Looking for the winking of the starlight before the the and after the planet.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: sometimes it would wink out only before the planet. And sometimes it would only wink out after the planet. It's like they weren't complete rings. And, you know, without that symmetry it's hard to argue you've got a ring system, right? You might have a loose wire. Um, And it really wasn't until the Voyager flyby in 1989 where it imaged the rings and you could actually see, you know, you could see that there was a faint, complete ring, but then there were these big, thick clumps that were much brighter than the surroundings. And so we confirmed with Voyager that these were, in fact, real clumps in the rings. And because some of the first ones were... Um, found, by, um, a predict, uh, found by observations uh, planned by a French team, they named the, the clumps um, after, you know, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité. Um, those were sort of the main clumps in the rings. Yeah, I
0: kind of noticed Years that. Years later,
1: um, we went back and we have tried to image the rings um, with Hubble. Uh-huh. We've tried to image these rings with the Keck 10 meter telescope. And it's really hard to do. Um, very difficult. Um, We do have detections, um, but they're not beautiful images. Um, People want to say, show me the rings. I'm like, well, let me show you this Voyager Voyager image. You're like, don't you have anything more modern? I'm like, yeah, but it's like right at the edge of the noise. Um, But even so, um, we were able to find that some of these clumps, um, they're not stable. Um, they do change with time and they seem to be drifting around. And that is what leads to this supposition that the, the ring system of Uranus is, uh, sorry, uh, the, the ring system of Neptune may not be as stable as the rings of the other giant planets and that they may disappear or they may be forming. We may, these clumps may get larger and spread out um, and make bigger ring systems in the future. Um, that's something we'd like to watch. And uh, to really do a great job on rings, we really need a spacecraft again. Um, hard, hard, hard to do with our ground and space-based telescopes right now.
0: right. And it, mission. And so w- when would you estimate that the next flyby mission or, or, or will it be an an orbital mission of Uranus and of Uranus and or Neptune in the next uh, twenty five years, you think?
1: Well, I hope so. (laughs) Um, You know, I've been asking for one for 30 years now. Um, Right now, there's a process happening in the United States, which we call our decadal survey process. Every 10 years, the community comes together, um, assesses what is our knowledge of our planetary system, um, what are the major unknowns and what are the most important scientific questions that we want to answer And what are the missions that we need to accomplish that? Um, We do this every 10 years. And um, that's happening right now. Uh, We're in process of our current decadal survey. In our last decadal survey, the top priorities were the Mars sample return, the beginning of the Mars sample return, Mm -hmm. um, a mission to Jupiter's moon Europa as the second priority, and third priority was an ice giant mission. And uh, you have to be one or two, (laughs) preferably one, uh, to really get started because NASA doesn't have an infinite amount of funding. So I'm hoping um, that that in this decadal survey, this might be finally the time um, when the ice giants rise to that level of number one. uh, We already have our Mars sample return mission moving forward. The Europa Clipper mission is in process right now. And so I think it's time to, um, to get back to the ice giants with modern technology, with modern imaging capability, with our modern knowledge of the ice giant systems. And whether it's Uranus or Neptune, I'd take either one. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I could, I could give you an impassioned um, argument for either of those two uh, planetary systems. Both of them have unique science unique challenges and mysterious puzzles that need to be solved.
0: So what drew you to planetary science?
1: You know, I never set out to be an astronomer. <laughs> um, I stumbled into astronomy as an elective course when I was in college. And, um, I, you know, as a sophomore, I had a, I had a free slot and I saw astronomy. Oh, that sounds like fun. And I, I went in um, to the class and there were four people. It was me and three guys, and two of the guys were like graduate students, and the other guy was a senior, and there was me, a sophomore. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> I went to the professor and said, I don't think uh, I don't think I should be in this class. It seems to be a high level course. He's like, No, 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 no. It's it's for you. This is this is a course for people like you. And I'm like, oh, Okay. Um, and um, it was. I was struggling. I was at MIT, and it was very hard, and I was really struggling, and I, I knew I had to drop a course, and I I went into the professor, and I said to him, this is Jim Elliott, the fellow who discovered the Rings of Uranus. I said, Jim, I, I think I'm going to have to drop this course, and he's like, but why, Heidi? You know, I, this is for you. This course is for you, and I said, well, I'm really struggling, and I, you know, I've got this course and a history course, and you know, th- this course, I have to do this project and I, I don't have any data for the project. And, you know, history is, is just it's it's easier. I can just do that. And he's like, no, 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 Heidi. You know, we're going to go out to the observatory tonight. You're going to get your data and you'll do your project. And I said, oh, I, I guess so, Jim. And, and, and he was right. <laughs> we went out to the observer. It was clear. And I often say if it had been cloudy that night, you and I would be talking about history right now, oh, not about okay. astronomy. Um, but it was clear. And I got my data. I was observing an asteroid. And I was able to measure the asteroid's motion. And and uh, then I took – and it was it was fun. And, and so he convinced me to take another class from him. And I did. And then he convinced me to be the TA for the class for the next group of kids coming in. And uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I just—it was always so much fun. I just kept doing it, um, more and more and more astronomy, and, and and that's that's how I became an astronomer.
0: And so, uh, as we mentioned, uh, Uranus and Neptune are long way from from Earth, a uh, long way from this part of our solar system. When you look at a night sky on a clear night from your own backyard do you automatically wonder how Uranus and Neptune are getting along? <laughs> 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 what what goes through your head?
1: Um, sometimes I do. Yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, we, you know, I, I think that um, not everybody thinks about Uranus and Neptune. I mean, they can see Jupiter, can see Saturn. They don't know what's out there for Uranus and Neptune, but but I do because um, I've, you know they're like friends for me i've been studying them for 30 years now and watching them uh, as our knowledge of them changes and our understanding of them changes and i you know so, occasionally when i'm at, with someone who has a small telescope and they'll say let's look at let's look at uranus and I'll, I'll look at it and you know you can you can barely see it right it's just like a little bluish greenish dot um but in my mind i'm imagining the Voyager images and the Hubble images and the Keck images. Um, same for Neptune. Um, you know, I, I imagine all of the richness that is there with them. And um, I, think, I think that's really wonderful that, the, that we've been able to do that, that, you know, we as a species have been able to enrich our understanding of these points of dots in the sky. And, you know, as Carl Sagan said, we've turned them into worlds they are not just points of light. They're actual worlds that have their own rhythms and their own characteristics and personalities. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm really, have been really lucky to be um, in a field at a time when we've been able to do that. And I, I try to share that as much as I can because it's, it's exciting and wonderful.
0: So Heidi, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment?
1: Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter, um, at HB Hamel, H-B-H-A-M-M-E-L, and they can follow me there. And I post a lot about giant planets and and all sorts of other astronomical things and telescopes and good stuff like that. And I'm also on Facebook, um, Heidi B. Hamel, so people can follow me there as well. And I I try to be interactive to the the level that I can. Uh, So if people have questions... Uh, they can follow me either on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, it'd be fun.
0: As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Heidi Hamill, thanks for helping us better understand these intriguing ice giant outer planets.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk about them with you.
0: Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormini. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormini, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.